right? All right, so we're in Genesis 25. We're going to pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We know that you're here. We thank you for this church, what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for the lives that are being saved and changed week by week. And Father, as we settle in right now, and we, just, we desire to continue in your word, you said if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And so, Lord, as we continue in your word tonight, we ask that you would speak to us from heaven, that you would give us insight, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us a love for you, that you would give us a greater appreciation for your truth and a love for one another. So we dedicate this time to you, and we ask your blessing to be upon it and upon us. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. In our past three Bible studies together, looking at Genesis chapters 22, 23, and 24, aside from the historical record of Abraham's offering of his son, and then the death of his uh, wife, Sarah, and then the gathering of a bride for Isaac, aside from the content of it, We saw this amazing picture of redemption. We saw the Father and the Son. We saw the offering and the cross. We saw the resurrection, the crown of thorns. We saw the provision of salvation. We saw the setting aside of Israel for her rejection of the Savior. We saw the bride of Christ being gathered and brought and united with the Son. An amazing picture in those three chapters of the entire redemptive history of man in the eyes of God. And it's an incredible thing that God put, just a thumbprint right in the middle of the book of Genesis that carries the DNA of the entire Bible within it, just those three chapters. Now, some have tried to extend that picture and bring it forward into chapter 25, but I don't believe it goes into chapter 25. You see, the son united with the bride at the end of chapter 24, you know, and the picture ends. God lays it out. He puts it there for us. And now as we go into chapter 25 and we see the death of Abraham and kind of the final things that uh, kind of sum up his life and encapsulate, put the capstone on uh, his, his time on the earth and what it is that he was to do, we move on from there. Now we still see Jesus on every page of the Bible. Jesus said that the entirety of the scripture testifies of him. But the type itself, if you try to carry it on now and say, okay, Keturah and the remarriage of Abraham and all this stuff, it just gets weird, you know. (laughs) So the type kind of closes out at the end of 24. And as we come into chapter 25, there's a transition that takes place from the end of Abraham and now moving on to the next generation, the, 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 the son of Abraham, Isaac. And so the chapter closes with his passing or, or, or contains his passing and the transition to his son. And so we read in chapter 25, verse 1. It says, Then again, and this is after the passing of Sarah and the gathering of the bride for Isaac, it says, Abraham took a wife and her name was Keturah. Now the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, that when Abraham was a hundred years old prior to the birth of Isaac, that he was impotent and he was no longer able physically to bear children. That we're told that in the Bible. But we're told that there was a miraculous thing done and that God rejuvenated and regenerated Abraham's procreative powers and thus Isaac was conceived. Abraham received strength to give seed even though he was as good as dead, the Bible says. Now, the amazing thing here is that when God fixes something, he fixes something. Because now Abram is about 140 years old and he can't contain himself. And the Bible says that it's better to marry than to burn. And so at 140, Abraham goes to the Oasis Outreach no, <laughs> and he, he, finds, he finds a wife there, and it says that her name was Keturah. And it says that she bare him, so she must have been a little bit younger perhaps, Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua, so he was busy in the sunset years of his life. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Ledeshim and Lamumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah and Epher and Henak and Abida and Elda. These were the children of Keturah. Now, all of those are, uh, for the most part, inqu- inconsequential, except, of course, you'll see the name Midian tucked in that list. 
And we'll hear in the Bible of the Midianites who become an opposing force and a perpetual enemy of the Israelites. And it's just interesting to me that they are actually descendants of Abraham, yet not through Sarah, but through Keturah. And then it says that Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. And so as we come into verses 5 and 6, what we have is the last will and testament of Abraham. And I'm amazed at how wealthy he was and yet how simple his will is. He goes, give it all to the boy. He says that he gave all that he had unto Isaac. But unto the sons of the concubines, and by that he's speaking of Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, and Keturah, it says, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and he sent them away from Isaac his son while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. And so he wanted no opposition. There was already some kind of conflict, we know, between Ishmael and Isaac. And Abraham wanted to set Isaac up to be the heir of the promise in the land that God had promised him. And so he sends away all of the other descendants into different areas, primarily what we would view today as Saudi Arabia, Yemen, uh, Kuwait, that whole area is where these descendants of Abraham go. But Isaac stays situated there in the land. And so the will, the last will and testament, and now the obituary in verse 7. And it says, and these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Now, that's remarkable to me. Because Abraham was 75 years old when God called him, and he's 175 years when he passes. And what that means is that he lived 100 years of a life on earth walking with the Lord. And what does it say about that life? It says in verse 8, it says, Then Abraham gave up the ghost, and he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. When the Bible talks about the fullness of years, it isn't simply just saying that he had a long life. Because when you compare the lifespan of Abraham with many others that have lived up to this point in the Bible, it really isn't as long as many of them. We see that prior to the flood, men were living over 900 years. Right after the flood, 600 years, 500 years, 400 years. Abraham lives 175, and yet it says that he was full of years. And the idea that's being conveyed or communicated in this is not a quantity of life, but rather a quality of life. It would better be translated that he was satisfied with life. Meaning that the life that he lived on earth when he would look over the days of it, having walked with God for so much of it and having seen the blessing of God and the provision of God and the goodness of God in it, that his own assessment of his life is he would say satisfied. And that's ultimately going to be the proclamation and the declaration of any person whom God gets a hold of their life and from the moment that God gets a hold of their life, they walk with him until the day that they pass. They'll look back over it all. Abraham didn't do everything perfectly. Abraham didn't have it easy. His life wasn't without road bumps or trials or sometimes extreme testings and excruciating fears and pain. But yet in the Lord, he was able to look over the span of it and he was able to just say, satisfied. I got everything out of this life that this life can possibly offer and it was worth every moment of it walking with the Lord. Now, no one who doesn't walk with God will ever speak those words. But Abraham is able to testify to us from beyond the grave and say that this is a fullness of life. And it says at the end that he was gathered to his people. I love that phrase. Because what it essentially is saying is that Abraham was gathered unto those that were like him. Ultimately, this is going to be the destiny of every human being. We will all one day be gathered to our people. Now I ask you the question tonight, who are your people? Who is it that you're most comfortable around? Which setting, which crowd, which crew, which place, where is it that you're the most comfortable? That's your people. Is it the people of God? Is that who you're most comfortable around? I remember as an early Christian, just walking with God just in the first few months, and I was hungry for the word. I couldn't get enough of it. And any time the Bible was being taught or shared or talked about, I wanted to be there. And so I would go to these home groups of people that were complete strangers, people I'd never known before, but it was something in the bulletin of a church, and I thought, well, I want to be there. As a college student, I didn't have the responsibility of family. And so I would go. And the thing that amazed me in those early days 
is that I felt more at home and more at ease being around Christians that were totally strangers than I did being with my friends in school or even my family back home that didn't know the Lord. And there's something that happens when the Spirit of God grabs a hold of a life, we become linked with one another wherein we are one another's people. And so I ask you tonight, who are your people? Are you the most comfortable around the people of God? Or do you still come into church and you think, this is weird, man, I don't like these people. You've got to ask yourself the question, where, who are your people? Ultimately, that's where we'll all be gathered. Well, it says that his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre, the field that he had purchased for Sarah prior to uh, all of this. And it says that the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt by the well, Lahiroi. Now, I love the timing of things here, and I think it's significant and important. It says that it came to pass after the death of Abraham that it was then that the blessing was transferred upon Isaac. It was at his passing the blessing came. Now, we understand, all of us, I think, at least to some degree, even if our understanding is elementary, the whole concept of DNA deoxyribonucleic acid, you know, the genetic code that makes us who we are, that contains all of the information that makes us our physical frame, that makes up our personality, our genes, if you would. And there is a physical DNA that all of us possess, but there is also a spiritual DNA. And when we give our lives to the Lord, He takes possession not only of the physical part of us, but he now possesses and controls the spiritual part of us, the spiritual DNA. And the amazing thing that happens when we give our lives to God is that he begins to change us from the inside out. And he doesn't simply change our behavior and reform the things that we do, but he changes who we are on the inside. The Bible calls it the renewing of our mind. In Romans chapter 12, it's a famous chapter and it's a famous passage. The Apostle Paul tells us, because of the mercy of God and everything that he's done for us in Jesus Christ, he says that it is our reasonable act of worship to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That we are to give him all that we are, our body. You say, well, what does God want with our body? He wants to use it. God the Father has a body. God the Son has a body, but God the Spirit has no body. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. But he wants to take possession of you and me, and he wants to use us in a way that glorifies God and blesses us. And so we're to present our bodies to God. But Paul then goes on to say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we're also to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And what that means is that God not only wants us to give him our body that his spirit might indwell us, but he wants us to give him our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, the things that make us tick, our personality. All of that is what the Bible is talking about. The Bible calls it our soul. The soul and the mind are synonymous. And God wants us to give him our mind so that he can, according to Romans 12, verse 2, renew it. He wants to make it new. It means a complete renovation. It means that he goes into what is currently our mind, and he begins a demolition project. He takes a sledgehammer. He takes a crowbar. <laughs> he takes everything, and he just demolishes everything that's inside. He says, all of this has got to go. Roll up the rug. Get it out of here. Just spray down the dust. Just clean this place out. Some of you might be here right now saying, no, that's exactly what's going on in my life right now. I feel like a demolition project, all the things that are happening. That's what he does. First he demolishes, and then he begins to remodel. And what he puts, does when he remodels is a completely different makeup than what we ever were previously. We're renewed. And so we're to present our minds as a living sacrifice unto him so that they can be renewed and thus they are, and it goes on to say, Romans 12, 2, transformed. Not reformed, not conformed, but transformed. He makes it all brand new. Now, sometimes some of us, as we begin to age, 
we begin to fall apart or slow down or things don't work the way that they want. And we begin to kind of investigate ways that we can restore and renew our own youth, right? I mean, anybody else with me on this? And so sometimes we start an exercise program or join a gym. We begin to learn what different vitamins and minerals and nutritional supplements and dietary patterns. We begin to care about these things that we never cared about when we were young and healthy and strong and energetic and all the rest. And we begin to kind of um, pursue health for the sake of longevity and energy and feeling good and all, all the rest. And so we begin to, you know, maybe take some vitamins, you know, and those vitamins carry promises with them that if we give our body the raw materials that are necessary for our organs, our um, adrenals, our different glands, if we give them the raw materials necessary for them to rejuvenate and restore, then we will be rejuvenated and restored. And so what we're doing when we're taking vitamins or eating properly or all this stuff is that we are putting raw materials into our body and we are supplying the factory, which would be the organs, our liver, our adrenals, whatever it is, the pituitary gland, our thyroid, that's the factory. We're giving the factory the raw materials necessary in order to rejuvenate or build us up or make us healthy. But the problem with that on the physical plane is that as we age, the factories aren't as efficient as, at using the raw materials that we give them. And so we put the vitamins in, the minerals, the, the supplements, the right eating and all this stuff, but we're still not improving to the degree that we would hope. And so, you know, of course, what we do, well, I just need to take more, I take this, the whole thing. No, 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 it's not that. The raw materials are there, but we're dying. And because we're dying, the factories are shutting down, and they're not as efficient at producing what they're supposed to produce, even though the raw materials are there. And so that's called aging. You know, <laughs> you can't beat it. We're all going to die, 10 out of 10 of us. I know, unless the rapture happens, right? You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with all that we're talking about here, the blessing being transferred onto Isaac and all the rest? Here's what it is. Is that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Spirit of God comes into you. Now, He's God, and the Bible says that He's omnipotent and that He can do all things. The Bible says that the purpose of God's Holy Spirit coming into our life and into our mind is to rejuvenate and renew us and to make us like Jesus that we might be transformed. Ah, thus... When the spirit comes in, the factory is regenerated. The turbines begin to spin. This amazing power, the same power that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in us. And there's a factory that is intended to produce the person and nature of Jesus Christ within you and me. The problem so often comes in not that the factory is weak or impotent and unable to make us like Christ, but oftentimes it just simply lacks the raw materials. Well, what are the raw materials that the factory of the Spirit uses to make us like Christ? Let me give you a hint. The Word of God. And so we put the Word of God in and we give the Spirit of God what is necessary to renew the mind. And we become like Christ. We begin to see the world through the lens of the Scripture. We begin to parent through the lens and through the operations and commands of Scripture. We begin to make decisions according to the wisdom of God that He gives us in His Word. We begin to make decisions for our life according to what God would want us to do as what's revealed in Scripture. And the Bible says that everything we need for life and godliness is contained within the Bible. And so as we consume the Word, as we take it in, as we then obey the Word of God... Our minds are renewed and we are transformed. We're made more like Christ and thus our DNA spiritually is changed. We become different people. We're not the same. We're not a reformed version of what we once were. We're not a conformed version of what we once were and now we behave religiously. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind on the inside and what we are is different from what we were. Now here's the good news. Is that when our DNA is changed or when we have DNA, we pass that DNA on to the successive generation. And thus, everything that we allow God to do in our lives to make us more like Christ and less like self is then transferred, at least in potential, upon our kids when we pass. 
upon those that we lead to Christ, upon those that we influence for his name within the world. It was when Abraham died that then the blessing was transferred onto Isaac. Isaac took the baton out of Abram's hand. Now that doesn't guarantee and necessarily means that our kids are going to be as spiritually mature as we are. It means that the potential is there, right? Just like how many of us recognize that I, me, I have the potential of becoming just like my parents. I hope that doesn't happen. Most of us hope that that doesn't happen. We have the potential. Why? Because we, our DNA, we're a product of what they were. Here's the encouragement, the application of it, is that you and I have the opportunity to thrust our children forward spiritually by the progress we ourselves make in the things of God. And that should drive us. Lord, do it in me. Let the factory not only be running 24-7, but let you, let it have everything it needs in order to produce what's best for me and for my kids and for the future. It says that the blessing was then passed upon Isaac and he dwelt by the well of Lahiroi. Now, verses 12 through 18, you can read them on your own. It talks about the descendants of Ishmael. He passes off the pages of Scripture and thus his descendants aren't worth our attention. And it says in verse 19, now that these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And so whenever you see those words in the book of Genesis, that these are the generations, you know that you're looking at what we would call a new record. Now, remember, Moses was the one who was the editor-in-chief of the book of Genesis. He pulled together the records. He himself wrote a bunch of it. Whenever you read that these are the generations, it is pulling together a record that testifies of a segment of time. So this is another one of those records, and it now leaves the record of Abraham, and it passes on to the generations of Isaac. Now, uh, amazingly, most of this is about Jacob and not about Isaac, um, 90% of it at least, but we begin with Isaac. It says in verse 20, it says that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister to Laban the Syrian. Now we know how all that took place. It happened in chapter 24. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now what we're going to find out is that this happens 20 years into their marriage. So Isaac and Rebekah are now married for 20 years. And at that point, they realize that they're not going to have any children. They're not having any children. And so Isaac wisely takes this thing to the Lord in prayer, and it says that he entreated the Lord. That's the word that it uses there for his wife. Now, this is the third time in the book of Genesis that we see a man praying to God. The first time was Abraham interceding on behalf of Lot, who was in Sodom and Gomorrah. It was intercession. The second time was supplication. We looked at that last time. When the servant was praying that God would prosper his journey and asking for leading and help with his task and his mission. Supplication, asking God for help in a situation. But this time it uses a different word and it's a different form of prayer. It uses the word entreaty. It's an interesting word. It's only used 20 times in the Bible. Whereas the word prayer or supplication, or intercession, those words are used countless times, hundreds of times. But this entreaty is a little bit different. It's a different form of prayer that Isaac now offers to God on behalf of his barren wife. The word entreat means to plead, to convince, to satisfy, to appease, to lobby, or to move the hand of. In other words, this whole concept of entreating would be like the picture of a lobbyist in a political situation. Now, what's a lobbyist? They hang out in the lobbies of the halls of Congress or where the decision makers, the movers and shakers, do their work in Washington or in the governing bodies of a local you know, town or city. And what a lobbyist will do is will approach someone who has influence or power and they will seek to convince them to govern or vote or decide in a way that favors their cause. Hey, would you please... Look out for us. This is our cause and what we're trying to do. And you have the power to make our life easier. Would you do it? There's a thousand people that will have your vote if you do. And oh, well, I could care less about your cause, but I certainly could care about a thousand babies or a th I mean a thousand votes, you know. So, hey, what, what, what is your thing, you know? 
And they're lobbied. They're being lobbied. They're being convinced of something or convinced to do something because of something that they will get in return. Now, you say, wait a minute. God can be convinced to do something because of something that he will get in return? Well, this sounds so strange. What is this whole thing? What you're saying here is that God is actually withholding a child from Isaac and Rebekah because he's seeking to draw out from them for something. And they're seeking to draw out from him something that only he can do. And he's seeking to draw out from them something that he wants them to do. Do you see that there's a relationship happening here in this whole thing? Isaac and Rebekah desperately want to have a child. God has a promise that directly you know, involves them having a child. So they want the same thing. They want a child. God wants to give them a child. And yet God is withholding even though they are pursuing and waiting. Why? Because they're not in alignment in terms of their purpose for what God wants to do within their life. And so God lets time go by and he lets them wrestle and struggle with not seeing this thing come to pass so that he can bring Isaac and Rebekah into alignment with what his purpose and plan is. Now, the amazing thing is that we're not told in the text what it was that Isaac said or did that caused God to be entreated. We're just simply told that God was entreated. Meaning that somehow Isaac and Rebekah came to the place where God said, now I can do the thing in your life that I've always been wanting to do. Now, what was it that, that, that God wanted from them? What he wanted from them, as we're going to find out, is he wanted their attention. God had very important information to impart to them concerning the destinies of the twin boys that will be conceived and then born from Rebekah and Isaac. And he needed to get their attention, and thus God used the barrenness and the time and the frustration of not having a child in order to get their attention so he could communicate to them the thing that they would need to know. God was waiting for something. Now, what we have here in the Bible, and I want you to listen to this because it directly applies to you and I, is that we have a, an instance where a definite promise from God is given and then a prayer is offered that is exactly according to the will of God, and yet God doesn't fulfill it. So a promise and a prayer that goes unanswered. Now, can anyone here relate to that? God gives a promise in his word. I pray to him, and I ask him to fulfill that promise, and I feel like I'm talking in an empty room. There's no answer. There's no um, completion in the whole thing. I'm talking, God, are you even listening? Now, it doesn't get any clearer in any situation that Isaac and Rebekah must have a child, right? That's the promise. It's going to be through Isaac that the nation of Israel is going to come forward. If they have no child, the promise can't come. We know they're going to have a child. And yet God is delaying. And for 20 years, they wait and nothing happens. So the question is this, why? Is God too busy? Was God reluctant and withholding on them? Was God impartial to their needs? Why is it that when they prayed and asked for something that was promised of God, he didn't fulfill his promise? It's none of those things. So you say, well, what's going on then? The answer is this, is that God is absolutely committed to his will in a situation for his good and our glory, or for his glory and our good, rather. God is committed in the situation to his will being done for his glory and for our good, not simply just the fulfilling of a promise. He has a purpose in the promise that's beyond it. Now, amazingly, we see barrenness in the Bible um, many times. And doubtless, it's a, it's a painful thing for anyone to have to go through. We see it six times in the Bible. We see it with Abraham and Sarah. She was barren and didn't have a child, and they had to wait. We see it here with Isaac and Rebekah. We're going to see it again with Jacob and Rachel, the son of uh, Isaac, that will come you know, as a byproduct of this union here. We see it a little bit later on. Um, it, it just keeps coming up over and over again. Samson, who was one of the judges, his father Manoah, we're not told his mother's name, she was barren, and, and they waited on the Lord. Hannah and Elkanah 
had Samuel, but she was barren and it didn't come, you know, when she first asked. John the Baptist, Elizabeth and Zechariah, his parents, there was barrenness in the situation. But amazingly is that every time, all six of the times that we see barrenness in the people of God, it happened because there was a specific task, calling, or reason that God had for the child, the offspring that was going to come. And God needed either the attention or to give instruction to the parents concerning the calling of that child. And thus, in every instance, there's an entreating of the Lord. That is an aligning of the wills for the purpose of God and the good of the situation. And so, for Abraham and Sarah, it was important that Isaac be the child of promise. And thus, God waited. There was a reason for the waiting. We see here with Isaac and Rebekah, there was information that needed to be given about Jacob and Esau, and thus God waited so that he would have their attention. When it comes to Jacob and Rachel and her barrenness, she would give birth to Joseph, and Joseph would need to be the son of Jacob's old age. There was reason for Joseph's delay in coming because he needed to be the kind of man he would be at that stage of his upbringing in order to deliver Egypt in the way that he would. Samson was to be a Nazarite, and so it was important that the parents be listening to God. God, why the delay? Why are you making us wait? And God would say, because this child is called, and the way that you bring him up is extremely important. We see it with Hannah. As the other wife, Penina, was popping out kids, one after the next after the next, and Hannah herself had none, and she was barren. She was struggling. She was straining under the weight of the feeling of that barrenness. And she finally came to God in the temple and she said, God, if you only give me a son, I will dedicate him to you and he'll be yours all the days of his life. And God said, that's what I was waiting for, entreated. You want a son, I want a prophet. Zechariah and Elizabeth, the same thing. They would give birth to John the Baptist. Jesus would say of John that he was the greatest prophet that ever lived. There was a purpose. Do you understand? Is that when God gives a promise... And we pray, and God doesn't fulfill the promise. It's not that he's reluctant. It's not that he's withholding. It's not that he doesn't care or that he's too busy. It's that God is seeking to bring us into an alignment of his purpose for giving the promise in the first place. And when we come into alignment that, God, this is what my life is about, and it's for you and for your, your purpose, it's then that God releases. The Bible gives us many promises concerning the power of the Holy Spirit being a reality in the life of every Christian. Ever since the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that the promise of God's power in every life is for you, your children, and as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Jesus said you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. He said that you'll have gifts of the Holy Spirit and that greater works than what I do will you do because I go to the Father. And thus there's a promise of the Holy Spirit being given in power to every believer. In Acts chapter 8, we see an account where Philip went to the city of Samaria. Peter and John came, laid hands on the Christians in Samaria, and it said that the Spirit of God fell upon them. And the change that took place in their life was so evident that a man named Simon the sorcerer went to Peter and he said, I'll give you money if you teach me how to lay hands on people and give them that kind of power. Meaning that when the power came upon them, it was evident even to the unbelievers that something had changed. And I say that only to say that when the power of God comes upon a life, everybody knows it. Why do I say all that? Because I can't tell you the number of Christians that come up to me and they say, I've prayed for the Spirit of God to come into my life and I feel like I don't have it. Would you pray for me? And I pray for them. And I'm hoping, like, Lord, use me in some way. Like, let this be, you know. And you pray, and sometimes there's no change. You say, well, is God indifferent? Am I cursed? Should I become indifferent myself? Should I just say, well, God, it's just not for me. I'm not chosen. I, don't, I can't have this power. It's not, you know, you don't like me. So fine, I won't like you. I'll just go my own way, you know, the whole thing, and I'll just live my life, you know. No. Can I ask you this? Why do you want the power of God in your life? Could it be that there's a barrenness in your life and spiritual things because your will and God's will are not in alignment with what he wants? And he withholds not out of reluctance, but out of patience. 
seeking to draw you to himself in such a way where when he gives the power to your life, his purposes are fulfilled for his glory and for your good. And so the barrenness draws us to him. And sometimes it might take 20 years for us to come to the end and say, God, I have gone my own way for so long, but I want your will in my life and not my own. And God, whatever you want to do with me, whatever you want to crucify, whatever you want to invest and instill, wherever you want to send me for whatever purpose and whatever reason, God, I am completely yours. And God says, like he did to Hannah, that's what I've been waiting for. And he is entreated. His delay is not his reluctance. And prayer is not overcoming his reluctance. Prayer is laying hold on his willingness in accordance with his will. What does he want? And God answers. If you're here tonight and you're waiting on a promise from God, whatever the barrenness might be, and it goes way beyond that of just having children, maybe some entreaty is necessary to come to God and say, God, what is it that you want to do or you want of me that you withhold or you wait? And the Bible says that Isaac was entreated for Rebekah and she conceived. Amazing uh, situation in this whole thing um, that happens there. Now, God gives the information. It says in verse 22, it says that the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it be so, in other words, if this is the blessing of God, if God has finally done something, and, and we're in his plan, and his will is moving in our lives, then why am I thus? There is a war going on in my belly, and I am in pain. This hurts. <laughs> and if this is the blessing of God, I'm not sure I want the blessing of God because this is painful. Why am I thus? And it says that she then went to inquire of the Lord. And so God has their attention. The next step unfolds. There's a battle going on inside Rebecca. She prays to the Lord about it, and God answers in verse 23. It says, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from your bowels. And the one people will be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Twenty years of barrenness in order for God to speak this sentence to Rebekah and then to Isaac concerning the offspring that would come. If they didn't know this, they would make a huge mistake. God tells her, first of all, that there are twins in you and there's a fight going on between the two because there are two completely different ethnicities going on or growing up inside of you and they do not get along with each other, even inside the womb. And God says, what you need to know, Rebecca, about these two nations, these two boys that are inside of you, is that one will be stronger than the other. And the implication, and this is important, is that the older one is going to be stronger than the younger one. But, God says, this is what you need to know. The elder shall serve the younger. In other words, the one who's born second is going to be prominent and first. And that was completely countercultural and counterintuitive to everything that happened throughout all of the history of mankind. The firstborn is always the prominent one. The firstborn always has the birthright and the blessing. But God says, no, it's not going to be that way with you, Rebecca. There's a battle. There's a war. There's two nations. There's two natures. One will be stronger but first. One will be weaker and second. But the elder shall serve the younger. You must know that, Rebecca. Now, this is an amazing thing that God says to her. Not only because of the way it touches God's foreknowledge and ability to see how things are going to play out, but spiritually it has a direct application to you and I. See, you and I, we're the bride of the greater than Isaac, right? And when the Spirit of God comes into us, the Spirit forms himself inside. You know what happens in every person that's born again? Two nations, two natures exist within that life. The old man, the firstborn, the stronger of the two, the flesh, Adam the first, you can call him whatever you want, slime bag, self-consumed one. And then the spirit of God who's born second. And for some reason it seems, doesn't it, in this planet that the spirit is the weaker of the two. 
Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, the things that I hate, I find myself doing. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I find in this war going on inside of me, there's this battle. I want to do good, but I can't do good. And we go, God, if you're in my life and there's this blessing, then why am I thus? Why is there this war? And the answer of God to you and me concerning the war is the same answer that he gave to Rebecca. He says, listen, there's two nations inside of you. Your self-life, the natural man that was born after the nature of Adam, the part of you that relates to the world and loves the world and indulges in the pleasures of this world, is completely contrary to the person of my Holy Spirit that has now moved in, who lives and moves and operates in a completely different kingdom, who carries with him a completely separate set of values than that of Adam the first. And those two are contrary to each other, and they will never agree. And as long as both are inside, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a battle. But listen, Christian. One will be stronger than the other. And the flesh certainly is stronger than the spirit so often, isn't he? But the declaration of God is that the older shall serve the younger. The flesh shall bow to the spirit. And that is a decision that you and I make on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Who is it that we are going to yield control of our body and of our mind to? The old man, the flesh, who lives according to the desires and passions of this world? Or the person of the Spirit of God? The new man created in righteousness and true holiness. The decision is with you and I. Rebecca's struggle is our struggle. Well, God gives her the information, and it says that when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob, means heel catcher. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bare them. So he was 40 when he was married. He's 60 when they're born. Amazing the names that are given to him. Esau, hairy and red. He's called red. Esau means red. Jacob, grasping the heel. The battle is going on even as they come out of the womb. No, I'm going to be prominent. I'm going to be preeminent. Amazing God's ability to see and their names reflecting their character. Jacob being the weaker of the two in the sense of, you know, personality or charisma. And it says, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, or a man of the earth. And that would be the definition of Esau's existence. He will be a man of the flesh, a man of the earth. No care for the things of God. And Jacob was a plain man, or a simple man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebecca loved Jacob. And so you never want to do this as parents. <laughs> Causes problems. It's going to cause problems. And it says that Jacob sawed pottage, meaning that he made a stew. And Esau came in from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with, pray thee, with some the same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And so Esau goes out hunting. He's out for a long time. He comes back famished. Jacob has been in the kitchen. He's been making this stew. And Esau asks him for some of the food because he's tired. And so Jacob said in verse 31, Sell me this day your birthright. I'll feed you. But I want your rightful place in the family. I want the birthright. I want to be considered the firstborn. I'll give you a cup of stew if you declare and pledge that I can be the prominent one in the family, if I can be the firstborn. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Circle those words in the Bible. And if you ever hear your mind utter those words, just punch yourself in the face. <laughs> what shall this birthright do to me? Do you know what the birthright represented? It represented being the priest of the family carrying on the spiritual torch. God gave a promise in the Garden of Eden that there would be a family chosen from all the families of the earth that would be the head bruiser of Satan himself. That family was Abraham's family and his descendants. God said to Abraham when he called him that I'm going to bring the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world through your lineage and through your line. 
What does this birthright mean to me? Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. To be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau for every generation. To be a pillar in the greatest thing that God will ever do in the world. What does this birthright mean to me? It's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob instead of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau because the birthright meant nothing to Esau. And so Jacob swore, or said, swear to me this day, and he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. He sold it for beans, and he did eat and drink, and he rose up and went his way. Listen, thus Esau despised his birthright. Big mistake. He gave away an opportunity to be a pillar in the greatest thing that the world will ever see. In fact, the very thing that the world was created to be. He threw it away for a cup of beans. He was a man of the flesh, of the field. He loved the world. He loved pleasure. He loved himself. And the things of God meant absolutely nothing. And he made the most foolish decision he could make. Sadly, this happens all the time, even among the people of God. What is the birthright of the believer? What is the birthright that you and I have? The Bible says that we are joint heirs with Christ. The Bible says that he was the firstborn among many brethren and sistren, meaning that he makes us one with himself. The Bible says that the promises of God in him are yes and amen, meaning that we're heirs of all that he has and all that he is. The Bible says that he has prepared for us a kingdom and a place in that kingdom and that he's given to us eternal life. The Bible says that he has placed a calling and a gifting upon us and an opportunity for us to be an expression of his kingdom to a lost and dying world in a way that only you and I could. What is the birthright of the believer? And yet, sadly, so many despise the birthright. And for the sake of living after the world or living for the flesh or indulging in a pleasure, they say, what is this birthright to me? Behold, I'm famished and want and desire of my the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 30, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 30, God says this. He says, Them that honor me will I honor, but them that despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now here's the good news as we close and the worship team can come. The good news is that even tonight, if you find yourself here sitting as I have in my life at times, Relating a little too closely with Esau, there is hope. Because with Esau, this was a one-and-done deal. He sought later on to restore it, to renew it, and he was not able. What was done was done. But with you and I, there are times when we slip, we slide, our priorities are screwed up, we get confused, we go a wrong way. And God doesn't write us off like Esau and say, heck, you sold it, you indulged, you, you gave yourself over, I'm finished with you, you're through. God doesn't do that. But rather, in his grace, he gives us an opportunity to repent and return. We know that because it tells us so in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. I want you to just listen to these verses as we close. Maybe tonight you're here and you're feeling condemned. You're feeling separated, you're feeling like it's too late, you're feeling barren unto death because of decisions that you've made. I want you to listen to what God says. It's Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as unto children? My son, or my daughter, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening then God deals with you as with sons. Meaning this, is that if you're in a distant place from God or you've been in a distant place from God or maybe you're even enduring or have endured the chastening of God because of things that you've done or the direction that you've gone. The Bible says that the very presence of that chastening in your life is proof that God is still for you and that he's willing to draw you back. If you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you're without chastisement, meaning that you just go your own way and God doesn't intervene and you just can go and go and go and there's no movement of God to bring you back or put a roadblock in your path, he says, then you're a bastard and not a son. That's the Bible, not me. 
He says, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, you know, our physical parents, which corrected us and we gave them respect. Shall we not rather be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? Here's why chastening comes. He says, for they truly for a few days chastened us for their own pleasure. But he, that is God, chastens us for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Meaning that God's chastening comes that we might be brought back to himself. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. I don't know about you, but when I get a spanking from God, I'm not like, yes, Lord, thank you. I, I mean, part of me is, certainly. But when I'm in the circumstance that he's allowed, I'm not. He says, nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. If God has stirred up an anxiety in you, a fearfulness, a tension, that tension, that anxiety, that fearfulness is his way of seeking to draw you back to the path. When he does, there'll be peace. He says it's the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised with it. So what are we to do? You're Esau here tonight, verse 12. He says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down. Get back to worship. Get back to seeking the Lord. Maybe some entreaty is a good idea. And strengthen the feeble knees. The knees is what helps us to walk. I'm not going to sit stagnant anymore. I'm going after the things of God. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Now he connects this exhortation directly to Esau. Notice in verse 16. It's not on the screen, but maybe it'll come up. He says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Don't be like Esau. Wake up, turn around, strengthen the feeble knees, esteem the birthright for what it is, and God will again bless. When God withholds his blessing in our lives, oftentimes he's waiting for an alignment of our will with his will. And when we come into that place when we belong completely to him, where we're completely surrendered to him, God does in our lives what he's always wanted to do in our lives and his blessing comes. And if you, in your heart, have despised the birthright in some way, placing a higher priority on something else, I implore you by the Spirit of God, Present your bodies a living sacrifice to Him. Give your mind to Him that it might be renewed and transformed. Be in alignment with His purpose for your life. And let your life be changed by His goodness and His grace. Father, we thank You tonight, Lord, as we look at this chapter and we see amazing pictures and parallels and messages. We ask that You would please help us, Lord, where we need to hear Your voice, where our path needs to be adjusted, where our minds need to be set right. Help us. We give ourselves back to you. Oh, Lord, we desire you. And we ask you to hear our prayer, Lord. In sincerity, we want more of you. We need more of you, Lord. So hear us and bless your congregation. And we ask it in Jesus' name.